When The Empire Strikes Back ended on its giant cliffhanger in 1980, a lot of viewers were disappointed, but it helped make this third Star Wars film arguably one of the most talked about and eagerly anticipated movies of all time. Tantalizing story threads were left dangling, puzzling mysteries unsolved, and thousands of people left the movie theater abuzz with many questions. Like, would Han Solo survive? Was Darth Vader really Luke's father? Would Luke turn to the dark side? Would Vader finally be destroyed? And who was the mysterious Another mentioned by Yoda? By this time, millions of viewers had become emotionally invested in these characters, and virtually everyone who had seen Star Wars and Empire would return for the finale, which George Lucas promised would reveal all the answers and tie up the story's loose ends. First, however, Lucas himself had to figure out what those answers were. So let's talk about the making of Return of the Jedi and how George Lucas made the circle complete. You're listening to Han Talks First. Yes, welcome back everybody to episode 91 of Han Talks First, the biggest, smallest podcast when it comes to Star Wars talk. This is the podcast you're looking for. It's the podcast you've been waiting for ever since you were born, and even if you didn't know it. Anyway, I'm happy to be here with you guys today. I hope you're having a good week. It is Wednesday here on the channel and in the galaxy, and if you guys are new here, welcome, so glad you're here. This is our third installment of the Making Of series, a new docu-series that we started uh, three weeks ago, talking about the making of the original trilogy. And then sometime hereafter, we will dive into the making of the prequels and do it movie by movie, and then end off with the sequel, Making Of. But today, we're focusing all of our attention on Return of the Jedi. Some say is their favorite Star Wars movie of all time. And of course, the one that really rings true to the children out there who who love this film so much. And the adults, not going to lie. This movie meant a lot to me as a kid. Of course, the whole original trilogy and the prequels did as a kid. I really loved all of them. But this one was a little different. This one was definitely more geared towards children and had that fun, adventurous aspect to it that I think we all gravitate towards even today. A little bit of quick news before we jump in. I did start uh, extending this show onto the app called Stereo. Stereo is an app where you can meet new people and have conversations. It's open to podcasters and just general people, so I decided to make one of my previous accounts on there and turn it into Han Talks first. So if you want to follow me there, you can actually talk with me in real time and talk about Star Wars. It's just at Han Talks First. I've only done one show there already. I will not focus the main topics on stereo. That's just more so I can communicate with the community out there and hear your guys' thoughts and talk to me in real time. So if you're interested, go check that out. Again, uh, you'll get all the same information here on the podcast. And again, if you haven't checked out the other episodes of the Making of series, please go back and listen to them. They're very interesting stuff and It's stuff that I I really find fascinating, and I think you will as well, because these movies weren't just so simple as they may seem nowadays. There was a a lot of challenges involved, and a lot of it had to do with coming up with a really good story. 
Some say the, this original trilogy is some of the best modern-day myth, mythological storytelling that has ever been told, and it, it truly is very special. So let's dive into it today and talk about this, and hopefully you guys enjoy. Now, it's hard to believe, but at the time, there were many viewers who were not entirely satisfied with the ending of The Empire Strikes Back, but the one whose opinion mattered most was George Lucas. And as it took shape, the third Star Wars movie would emerge largely as a response to the second one. Lucas believed that the more introspective, adult approach of Empire had proven difficult for younger viewers, who had made the original picture so successful. But he was determined to make Return of the Jedi more kid-friendly, because he felt that, while a darker tone was necessary for the middle chapter, Empire had gone too far in that direction. And he was adamant that Jedi would be the uplifting spirit of the original film, and provide a happily ever after for the conclusion to his fairy tale. So during pre-production of Return of the Jedi, there were many challenges that were going through George Lucas's head, and during the actual creation of the process. For example, him and his wife at the time were adopting an infant daughter. Another one was that he was still trying to grow his Lucasfilm empire, all while at the same time trying to make his filmmaker's retreat, otherwise known as Skywalker Ranch, which is one of the leading developers in in the, the movie-making world. And at this time, he had debated handing over the keys to the franchise to a trusted collaborator. But because of how monumentous a Star Wars movie production is, he realized that the only way to ensure that a project would both meet its budget and perfectly align with the vision that he had, he had to become more actively involved in the making of this fi- these films. And he dreaded this prospect. You know, originally Lucas had planned to do a nine-movie series, three separate trilogies, all telling one big story. And his goal originally was to release Star Wars pictures for the next 21 years of his life, starting in 1980, with three years in between each film. And this is when he believed that he could allow other people to start making the movies for him, especially after the recent success of Indiana Jones' Raiders of the Lost Ark in 1982 which actually made more money and was more successful than Empire Strikes Back. And then he suddenly realized that maybe he could perhaps thrive in the filmmaking world without just making Star Wars. It was at this time that he said this, and I quote, I don't want to spend the rest of my life making Star Wars pictures. So then he made the momentous decision that Return of the Jedi would be the last Star Wars film, or at least the last one for a long, long time. Now let's talk about some of the issues not issues, but some of the unsolved riddles and some of the cliffhanging aspects of Empire Strikes Back that needed to be answered in this final film. One of the biggest ones, of course, (laughs) was Han Solo. I think the biggest question left hanging at the end of Empire was what is the fate of Han Solo? You know, some people believe that Harrison Ford wouldn't even return. He's infamously known for wanting to have his character killed off in the Star Wars movies. And in the making of Empire. That's one of the reasons why we talked about last week. Lando Calrissian was introduced into this story to take place as a possible substitute in Han Solo's place if he wasn't able to make it back into the third installment of the trilogy. And because of the Empire's success and some wooing from the producers, Harrison Ford eventually said he would return. And I have a quote here saying from him, the reason I returned was because morally it felt like the right thing to do. Now, I take that as him being overwhelmed by the success of Empire Strikes Back (laughs) and wanting to come back so he can make some more of that cash money. 
And even at this time, he still insisted that his character be killed off at the end. We'll get more into that later. Another major question that needed answered in this Return of the Jedi film was the comments made by Yoda. You know, Lucas had this sticky issue of trying to identify who Yoda meant when he referred to another hope for the cause of the rebellion. And this question was perhaps the biggest because Lucas was flooded with letters from fans begging to know who Yoda was talking about. He often talks about this in some of these books that I've read, learning about this, the making of. And tons of fans sent in letters after Empire, wanting to know many questions. But the main one that he got flooded with was, who was Yoda talking about? Lawrence Kasdan, the assistant writer for Return of the Jedi, who also wrote Empire, and George Lucas, also had no idea at the moment that they wrote that into the script. Mark Hamill even had his assumptions about who Yoda could be talking about. He once thought that Yoda was referring to a character that could possibly replace Luke in the final film if, for some reason, they didn't want to have Mark Hamill back. I have a quote from him that says, It seemed designed to make you feel that Luke's expendable, and it's a cheap trick, but it works. So before Lucas decided to cancel the sequel trilogy he was going to make, that character Yoda was referring to was supposed to become a central figure in episodes 7 through 9. And we now know that that didn't happen. But instead, they turned it into Princess Leia. And we'll talk about how they came to that final decision a little bit later as well. And one of the other big major questions that needed to be answered in this last, in this last film was affirming that Luke is Vader's son. So with those major plot points that had to be decided on, let's jump into the actual process of writing the script. In 1980, George Lucas wrote out three story outlines before he wrote his first rough draft of the screenplay. And that first rough draft he delivered to the studio on February 24th, 1981. And in this early version of the script, it was titled Revenge of the Jedi, and it was radically different from the final screenplay. And in many respects, it was actually more ambitious and original. And we'll talk about that here. Much of the action in this version of the script centers on the capital planet Had Abandon, and also on the relatively unspoiled forest satellite Green Moon. Now, we do know that today we refer to Had Abandon as Coruscant, and we refer to Green Moon as Endor. Those names were ultimately switched to fit modern-day canon, and of course Coruscant was cut out of Return of the Jedi, but it later wasn't the inspiration to bring in that capital planet into the prequel movies. So it's interesting to see everything was kind of already talked about in those early days of making Star Wars. And a lot of the Star Wars we got in the prequels was just revisited ideas and concepts later on. So now I'm going to read you the outline that George Lucas made. And this is a summary of that first original draft. And it's pretty exciting. So here we go. The entire capital planet of Had Abandon, later known as Coruscant, is a giant, smoggy city which draws most of its natural resources from a relatively unspoiled forest satellite referred to as simply the Green Moon. This is essentially Endor. And the Green Moon is home to a race of small, furry primitives who are beneath the notice of the Empire, known as the Ewaks. It is also the home to two giant laser cannons that defend the Imperial homeworld, also orbiting Hadabannon, are two new and even more powerful Death Stars, both still under construction. 
On Hadabanon, Darth Vader is summoned to the Chamber of the Emperor, an underground layer near the planet's core where the Imperial Throne is encircled by a pool of bubbling lava. Vader's failure to capture or kill Luke Skywalker on Cloud City has drawn the ear of the Emperor, who orders Grand Moff Jaredin to have his men capture Luke and bring him to the Emperor for training. When Vader protests, the Emperor uses the Force to momentarily cut off the Sith Lord's air supply, and tells him he is fortunate that he is still being allowed to live. Vader wants to recruit Luke to help him overthrow the Emperor, and the Emperor wants Luke to replace Vader as his hatchet man. Meanwhile, Princess Leia and the Rebel Strike Team, led by Captain Jode, makes a secret landing on the Green Moon, and they plan to take over the laser cannons, using them to fire on Hadabandon itself, taking out the force field generator protecting the two Death Stars, and cutting off communications between the space station and the homeworld. Then, at a prearranged time, the Rebel fleet will drop out of hyperspace and destroy the Death Stars. The previous flaw in the Death Star design had been eliminated, to the space stations must be destroyed before they are completed. Across the galaxy on Tatooine, Luke, Lando, Chewbacca, and the droids rescue Han from the clutches of Jabba the Hutt in much the same manner as it was in the finished film, although without Leia's help. Luke's battle with the Rancor monster and the death of Jabba at the Sarlacc pit are already present in this early version. Next, Luke, Han, and the rest of the gang fly the Millennium Falcon to the grass planet of Seisman, where the Rebel fleet is massing for an Imperial attack. And on the way, Ben Kenobi and Yoda appear to Luke in a dream. And Kenobi explains that Vader was murdered by the dark side, and reveals that Leia is Luke's twin sister. And Luke must face Vader again, so they say. Kenobi also explains that at this time in the netherworld, time is running out, and he must either return to his material form, or else become one with the Force. For now, he will remain in the netherworld and attempt to cloud Vader's ability to use the Force. And Yoda has joined Kenobi in the netherworld and will do the same to the Emperor. On Seisman, Han learns the details of the rebel plan and wants to rush there to help Leia. Admiral Akbar cautiously is against this as does Luke at first. Then, while constructing a new lightsaber, Luke has a vision that the attack will fail. Leia is in danger. Luke, Han, Chewie, and the droids rush to the green moon in the Falcon. And on the green moon, Leia meets and befriends the Ewoks. As in the finished film, Vader senses Luke is near to the moon. Luke, Han, Chewie, and the droids are pursued by Imperial troops, including a two-legged ATST, otherwise known as a chicken walker. Luke, realizing that his presence poses a threat to the mission, surrenders, enabling the others to escape. He is taken to the Grand Moff Jaredin, but before Jaredin can take him to the Emperor, Vader appears. Vader kills Jaredin, strangling him with the Force, and takes Luke to the Emperor himself. The final showdown takes place in a subterranean Imperial throne room. While on the Green Moon, the Ewoks help the Rebels capture the laser cannons, and the assault on the Death Star commences. Luke, aided by Yoda and Kenobi, face the Emperor and Vader. Kenobi and Yoda appear both Vader and to the Emperor, and urge them to surrender. Kenobi tells the Emperor, There is no entrance to the Netherworld through the Dark Side. Nonetheless, the Emperor forces Vader and Luke to fight one another. And the Emperor tries to goad Luke into turning to the Dark Side to defeat Vader. Luke is too strong for Vader and eventually defeats him, but he refuses to kill, 
Realizing that his plan has failed, Vader intensely looks at the Emperor and figures out his scheme to try and take and replace him with his son. Then he launches himself boldly at the Emperor, and the two of them tumble into the lava, and the Emperor and Darth Vader are destroyed. Above, the rebels destroy the Death Stars, and the Empire has fallen. Afterward, the rebels and the Ewoks hold a victory celebration on the moon, and Kenobi and Yoda return in the flesh to take part in the festivities. So that's how the first draft of Return of the Jedi went. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? It is ambitious, it is bold, it is original in some ways, but in some ways, in retrospect, it is kind of cheesy and kind of corny. And although we may not appreciate what that outcome would have been today, at the time, it would have been something truly special. The one problem I had with it was the the fact that Obi-Wan and Yoda are returning back to the nether or returning back to the material world not during the emperor fight but just to come party with the rebels at the end of the movie and i did i did like that early on in this time period back in 1981 george lucas already knew that Yo- master yoda was so incredibly powerful that he had to be the one to go up the, against the emperor and Obi-Wan would go up against Vader, both trying to cloud their minds while Luke would attack. Another interesting thing about this was originally Vader and the Emperor were going to get into a tussle and eventually roll into the lava that was surrounding the Emperor's throne. Again, it seems kind of cheesy, but if it was executed the right way, it could have made for a really cool scene. It reminds me of Terminator 2 when the the mon the uh, the monster when the droid is falling into the the lava and he holds up his thumbs up or whatever <laughs> anyway it doesn't seem like there was a necessarily as big of a redemption for Darth Vader in this original script hence the title being Revenge of the Jedi at the time would have made a little bit more sense but at the same time we didn't get really to really see Luke overpower those two Sith lords as much as we did in the Return of the Jedi final film. Overall, this is an interesting approach to the first draft of the story. I think it was it helped set up what eventually was going to become, you know, the final film. But it's interesting to look back on now. So let's move on and talk about how they took these aspects and these story concepts and transitioned into the final draft. You know, unfortunately, many of the exciting and ambitious elements from this first draft would disappear as the screenplay continued to evolve. A series of story conferences involved discussions with George Lucas, Lawrence Kasdan, Richard Marquand, and Howard Kazanjan. Now, Richard is the director of Return of the Jedi, Lawrence Kasdan is one of the writers, and Howard is the producer on Return of the Jedi. So Lawrence Kasdan and George Lucas clashed repeatedly through these sessions of the the story conferences because Lawrence was trying to push for a darker story and a more adult direction, but George Lucas continually pulled back on it because George Lucas started becoming, you know, he pulled back on it so much and he was so frustrated with Lawrence that he eventually started to become very sarcastic with him. At one point, he actually jokingly suggested that at the end of the film, He should have Luke put on Vader's mask, destroy the rebel fleet, and proclaim himself as the new emperor. 
Now, Lawrence Kasdan actually took his tone as serious, not sarcastic, and he replied to him saying, I think that's what should happen too. <laughs> Isn't that just very odd that that's how Lawrence Kasdan wanted this to end? Well, we'll talk more about it, but I think it's it was funny how he took a sarcastic comment from George and wanted to make it a reality. Now, Lawrence Kasdan argued at length that the Jedi should feature, you know, Return of the Jedi should feature a death of a major character. And at first, he actually suggested Luke be killed in a battle, and that Leia would become the one who finishes off the Emperor. George Lucas quickly vetoed that idea, and Lawrence Kasdan also suggested, well, why don't we just kill Han Solo? But again, Lucas, you know, denied that as well, and he insisted that the viewers would feel let down if Han and Leia didn't, you know, end up together at the end of the film. He, al- he also suggested that Lando be vaporized, not just vaporized, but also along with the Falcon during the final battle scene, Lando and the Millennium Falcon would both be destroyed. And his quote backing that up is, I'm trying to give the story some kind of edge to it. <laughs> George Lucas obviously, you know, vetoed that as well. He didn't like the idea of any of the main characters being killed off in this final film. And... Honestly, thinking about it now, if they'd have destroyed the Falcon, that would have made for a very, very interesting, you know, future for Star Wars since it, it's, you know, one of the most iconic ships and it's practically in every Star Wars movie TV show that's out there. So that is very interesting. But ultimately, George Lucas remained adamant that, and I quote, everybody needs to live happily ever after and nothing bad happens to anybody. The whole emotion I'm trying to get at the end of this film is for you to be really uplifted emotionally and spiritually and feel absolutely good about life. And that is the greatest thing that we could possibly ever do. So that's a quote from George Lucas about his overall tone of the ending chapter to this trilogy. Eventually, he did agree on a death. And the one death that he agreed to was Master Yoda. But he proclaimed that he could not die in a battle and George insisted that he died of old age in a life-affirming way to demonstrate that death was a natural part of the Force and something that shouldn't be feared. Some other things that Lawrence Kasdan was, you know, very against in George Lucas's first draft, because you got to remember, George Lucas alone wrote the first draft of Return of the Jedi. And then he, then he came to Lawrence Kasdan and said, let's, let's clean it up a little bit. Now, one thing that Lawrence Kasdan was very much against was the Ewoks, or at least in this first draft, they were known as the Ewaks. <laughs> I, I love Ewoks better. Ewak sounds a little provocative, but, you know, whatever. And he wanted to base this off of uh, Ap- Apocalypse Now. George Lucas did. The, the whole role of the Ewoks in the film. And the idea of this low-tech, indigenous people overcoming a technologically superior military force, such as the Empire. So that was kind of George Lucas's homage to Apocalypse Now, who was made by one of his great friends, Francis Ford Coppola. And another thing Lawrence Kasdan didn't want in this script was he didn't want another Death Star, you know, let alone two. (laughs) In George Lucas's first draft, he wanted two new Death Stars, and Lawrence Kasdan was very much against it, and ultimately he was able to convince him to get rid of one of them. <laughs> but Lucas's defense to keeping a Death Star was his f- very famous quote about, 
Well, Star Wars is like poetry. Uh, it rhymes. <laughs> He's been saying that since the 70s uh, about these Star Wars movies. And so that's why he wanted to keep the Death Star in there. But George Lucas insisted that Luke must return to Yoda uh, at some point in this film because he had empathetically promised to do so in Empire Strikes Back, and he thought that would disappoint fans. Another thing George, uh, I'm sorry, that Lawrence Kasdan, you know, didn't want from George Lucas as a first official, first official draft was he didn't want Vader to be redeemed at all, at all. He wanted Vader to die a villain. And he, he quotes saying, the redemption that George wrote for him makes Vader look wimpy. <laughs> and you can see how much these guys butted heads during the making of this last, this last film. But this also is a testament to George Lucas and his collaborative efforts because this was his. This was his project. He could have cut out Lawrence as whenever he wanted to. But he let him stay around because he was keeping him level-headed and, you know, helping him, you know, not get too carried away with some of his ideas. Now, the way that George Lucas convinced Lawrence Kasdan to be okay with Vader's redemption was that Lawrence insisted that his unmasked face look hideously scarred and mangled. And George Lucas was okay with that. And that, of course, is when the idea of Vader being, you know, destroyed on, a, on Mustafar came, came to life. Since they couldn't have the lava in Return of the Jedi, he decided to create somewhat of a backstory where him and Obi-Wan fought and... You know, eventually Obi-Wan got the high ground and destroyed Vader and he caught fire. And which ultimately became Revenge of the Sith. But this is where that idea came from. And you know, it wasn't just Lawrence Kasdan who actually got to give input on the story. George Lucas actually took input from the three main stars. All Mark and Harrison and Carrie. Which is actually kind of you know, impressive that George would go out of his way to see what his, you know, his actors wanted to, to see happen in this third film. Some original ideas from Mark Hamill was that he wanted Luke to give into the dark side and use its power to destroy Vader and the Emperor. But then he would go back to the good side because of Leia. And we kind of got a little bit of that. I mean, at least, um, ironically and metaphorically, you know, symbolically with the black robes and all that kind of stuff and the way he fought Vader at the end. One of the ideas that Harrison suggested, again, was that he wanted to, you know, commit a self-sacrifice and ultimately be destroyed. He really wanted he really wanted his character to die. He felt like that was the perfect purpose that he could have to contribute to the Star Wars story. And one of the things that Carrie had suggested she wanted to see in the story was she wanted to soft soften the, the character of Leia because she complained that before, and I quote here, she came off as some kind of space bitch. That sounds like Carrie Fisher, doesn't it? Gotta love Carrie. We did see a softening of Leia. She got less, you know, smack talky and back talky, you know, less insults, scruffy looking nerf herder. And it makes sense considering, you know, the arc of her character. But I, I do miss that old, that old Princess Leia, you know, the classic Princess Leia. So moving on to the second draft of the story. By the time this second draft was completed and he took all the, you know, 
words of inspiration and input from the cast and the writer. He completed the script and he turned it in on September 21st, 1981. However, the only passages that were left blank were the major battle scenes, which Lucas was designing with his team back at ILM. And Lucas then filled in those blanks and gave the script back to Lawrence Kasdan. And then Lawrence Kasdan polished up those scenes, revised it, and made it become the shooting script. And the shooting script was delivered on December 1st, 1981. So really, it took just about a year for the script to be fully realized. Now, everything that was in the script wasn't really set in stone because George Lucas continued making adjustments and writing new things as they were in production and shooting some of the scenes. What's very interesting was the last thing that was written for Return of the Jedi was the final dialogue for Luke and Vader and the Emperor during the final scenes of this film, which was actually all 100% written by George Lucas. He had no assistance from Lawrence Kasdan on writing the ending of the movie, at least in that climactic battle, which I believe is some of the most well-written Star Wars we have ever seen. <laughs> some of the well, most well-written scene that I've ever seen in a movie before. So it, it's very impressive to that. You know, George Lucas, he, he's, he's a good writer, and I think... The reason why this is so good is because he waited and did it last minute when they were in the moment actually shooting this movie and he could really, you know, be in the minds of these characters and it was kind of just like a passion of the moment thing. Now, one of the big questions about the making of Return of the Jedi was how did they keep this movie such a secret? Because at the time, there were many people trying to figure out how they were going to close off this movie. And <laughs> there's a lot of people out there, even to this day, that try and get as many spoilers as they can just so that they can release it to the public. I'm not a fan of that. I've never been a fan of that. But it's a thing. we got to live with it. So one solution to this problem was George Lucas and Lawrence Kasdan actually wrote additional scenes for this movie once they knew that they would never actually appear on the screen. And as a part of the Star Wars team's extraordinary efforts to ensure secrecy of the movie, they would fake, they would write fake scenes, and the fake scenes were written to substitute those, uh, for example, in which Obi-Wan Kenobi reveals Leia's true relationship to Luke. And another one is which the Emperor and Vader die. And in these fake scenes, or these phony scenes, as George Lucas calls them, Luke, rather than Vader, kills the Emperor. And the real script for these scenes were printed on blue paper and was withheld from a majority of the cast and the crew, and often withheld until the final moments, moments leading up to their shooting schedule. So the script ended up answering all those lingering questions from The Empire Strikes Back, but often in the least imaginative way as, as possible. George Lucas knew this, and he explained once in an interview that Star Wars started off as a simple fairy tale, and that's all it really is. When Return of the Jedi comes out, people will say, oh my god, how obvious. Why couldn't they think of something more interesting than that? And honestly, the truth is, they did think of some things more interesting than the final outcome of this, of this movie. They just happened to be rejected. 
And I think the final film that we got of Return of the Jedi is the the perfect ending to this story. To be honest with you, there's some parts of it that I don't really care for, but there's the majority of it is it's a really special film, and I love so much about it. I guess the one last thing I'll say about the making of this movie, as far as the story goes, is, you know, originally titled Revenge of the Jedi, and we all know this story, but leading up to its release, George Lucas decided to change the name to Return of the Jedi, because, obviously, Revenge of the Jedi doesn't sound like something a Jedi would do, seek revenge, so instead calling it Return of the Jedi, an excellent change, and would lead up until revenge of the sith came out that he would you know revisit that name and i think it works perfect for both of those movies in their own retrospect titles so before we get out of here i want to share with you just some fun facts about the making of the uh return of the jedi because this was a shorter episode Uh, there's not much out there in the research i have at least the books that i've gone through about the making of return of the jedi so I just wanted to share some random fun facts. And so the first one I have here is actually about the director. So, you know, Richard Marquard was actually not the original choice for, you know, directing this final film. The first option that George Lucas wanted, the first pick he had, was actually his friend Steven Spielberg. And, you know, we all know Steven Spielberg has been wanting to make a Star Wars movie for forever. Uh, he, he rejected... Uh, making a a prequel movie uh, and he rejected making return of the jedi because you know he's a member of the director's guild of america and according to their you know their rules they're not allowed to work on an independent production because it won't go by their guidelines so he had to decline it just kind of sad he did however shoot some additional scenes in revenge of the sith that he was uncredited for and we talked about that on our revenge of the sith episode so if you want to check that out go back and listen to that but anyway another director that george lucas considered before richard was david lynch <laughs> how weird is that the guy who made blue velvet and muholland drive and all those crazy weird movies uh, it actually went so far as david lynch had an interview with george lucas he was he was flown down to skywalker ranch they had dinner and david lynch tells this hilarious story about how you know he had a massive headache the whole time he was there because he didn't really want to make Star Wars. He just went because he wanted to meet George Lucas. And he went to a place that they had a lunch at, but the only thing they served were salads. And David Lynch is not a salad eater, and he was upset by that. And then he tells the story about how he went to the studio and he saw concept art for the Ewoks, and he thought that was the most ugly thing he'd ever seen. And he was like, okay, that's it. I'm not going to make this movie. <laughs> you guys should go check out the interview on YouTube, David Lynch talking about his proposal to direct uh, Return of the Jedi. Another uh, pick that George Lucas had was David Cronenberg. Uh, He's also a very weird director. Um, Both uh, David Lynch and David Cronenberg have made really dark films. So it's weird that Lucas wanted a a brighter, happier, kid-friendly movie for the finale, but he approached all these really (laughs) dark filmmakers to, to come in and make it happen. It's kind of a weird thing. But eventually he did choose Richard Marquand because, one, everyone else he asked had you know declined the offer, but also he was chosen because of this World War II spy thriller that he made called Eye of the Needle. 
I myself haven't seen it, but this is the movie that, you know, made it possible for Richard Marquardt to come in and direct it. Another fun fact is that um, Return of the Jedi was the biggest influence on the prequel movies. In an early story meeting between Lucas and uh, Lawrence Kasdan and the producer Howard, they essentially mapped out the prequel trilogy. I have a quote here that says, Anakin Skywalker starting hanging out with the Emperor, who at this point nobody knew, and they didn't know that he was that bad, because he was an elected official. And George Lucas says um, that with Lawrence Kasdan responding, was he a Jedi? And Lucas says, no, he was a politician. A Richard M. Nixon was his name. He subverted the Senate and finally took over and become an Imperial guy, and he was really evil. But he pretended to be a really nice guy, and he sucked Luke's father right into the dark side. And while they were discussing the backstory, which ultimately led up to become the prequels, Ralph McQuarrie actually designed concept arts for all of these things, which eventually made their way into uh, Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. Pretty cool stuff. The third fact I have here is that The Return of the Jedi wasn't only a momentous movie for the time and, you know, narratively challenging for other films to try and, you know, up their game, but it also changed the way that we hear movies. You know, at this time, George Lucas was creating THX, which was this cutting edge uh, sound that, you know, movie sound effects and theater certifications would upgrade to become the, the highest resolution for audio for movies. And when they screened Return of the Jedi initially, they screened it in a theater in Los Angeles. But when they did, the mix was completely off. The dialogue was all over the place. The sound effects were, you know, really, they sounded awful. And everything just sounded bad. And the reason is because the movie's sound was so technologically far advanced than the movie theaters that it didn't sound good. So they actually had to come up with a new parameter and encourage movie theaters to upgrade their, you know, their units so that they could show return of the Jedi. So in a way return of the Jedi, you know, it kind of changed the way movie theaters, you know, adapted, which is pretty cool. Another fun fact is Obi-Wan and Yoda were obviously supposed to return back to the material world. As we talked about earlier, you know, Lucas preferred the ending of having Obi-Wan and Yoda effectively, being resurrected as force ghosts and from what the the script called it the netherworld and they would come back and celebrate the end of the empire and in several drafts of the script obi-wan and yoda also coach luke through his fight when he confronts vader on the second death star it was actually in june 12th of 1981 um in this draft it obi-wan tells luke i am here to help you destroy the emperor and your father And Luke responds, I can't. And later, Yoda emerges and says, You can and you will. In the netherworld, Obi-Wan and I are at your side. Help you, we will. So these scenes were obviously cut for various reasons. With one being that, (laughs) at the time, a nearly seven-year-old Alec Guinness couldn't effectively travel to partake in the fight scenes. And upon being asked to do a single scene on Dagobah for Return of the Jedi, Guinness notably, in his biography, said, It's a rotten, dull little bit, but it would have been mean for me to refuse. (laughs) Alec Guinness really didn't enjoy doing the Star Wars movies, which is weird because the reason he accepted it is because he loved George Lucas, but he ended up not really liking his role at all, which is kind of weird. We seem to see that a lot 
with some Star Wars actors that they really don't enjoy being in there. It's just a job for them, you know. But anyway, I'm glad he came back for Return of the Jedi and played his small part, even though he considers it rotten and dull. Another fun fact is there were over 800 special effects from this movie that were removed (laughs) from the final cut. Total, there was 900 special effects. And eventually they cut that by 800, only leaving 100 left in the film. You know, when Lucas and his editors, Sean Barton, Dwayne Dunham, and Marsha Lucas delivered a cut of the film in November of 1982, it forced the special effects teams at ILM to restructure key sequences, totaling up to 100 VFX shots, especially in the end battle sequence. And Lucas cut the shots and substituted others as a way to improve the climax of the film. His quote here said, or a quote from the ILM supervisor, Bruce Nicholson, says, a lot of stuff was cut from that work and they had worked several months on producing it we called it black friday because it was the equivalent of the stock market crash (laughs) so it sounds like you know he was a little disappointed that a lot of their shots got to be cut from the film another fun fact is that leia's bounty hunter is the same voice as et you know before et showed up in the senate meetings in the prequels um, he also made an appearance in return of the jedi the voice of Boosh, who is Princess Leia's bounty hunter disguise at Jabba's palace, was provided by Pat Welsh, and she was also the voice of E.T. in the movie E.T., <laughs> so she got to play a part in here, too, so just the same voice actor. I think that's kind of cute. The last fact I have for you here is, you know, the obvious one, that the Ewok are actually never referred to as Ewoks in the movie. You know, although there was much debate over having Ewoks in the film at all, and it even went through several name changes, you know, such as Ewax originally, the word Ewok is never actually spoken in Return of the Jedi. And on top of that, neither are the names of the individual Ewoks. So it's something really interesting that these characters went through so many different variations and changes and, you know, deleting and, you know, putting them back in and then... They never even bothered to mention the name. (laughs) It's kind of funny. And, of course, Ewok is a a way better word than Ewak, as it originally was. But, guys, that's all I have for you today. That is the making of Return of the Jedi as far as the script process goes. I want to thank you all for listening today, and I hope you had fun. I hope you learned something. If you haven't heard the making of A New Hope and the making of Empire Strikes Back, please go back and check out those episodes. There will be a video version of this available on YouTube coming next week. So go over there and check that out if you want to so you can see some visuals and behind-the-scenes photo and video from the making of Return of the Jedi. Now, we haven't completely finished the series of original trilogy making of yet because next week, on Wednesday, I have a very special guest coming to help talk about the screenwriting process. I'm going to have a Hollywood screenwriter come into the studio and talk about screenwriting and Star Wars. It's going to be a great episode, so I highly recommend you come back on Wednesday and check that out because we're going to have a lot of fun. And I'm not announcing who it is today, but on Monday next week, I will announce who it is and we're just going to have a bunch of fun talking about Star Wars. So thank you all again so much for listening. I hope you have a great rest of your week. If you like the WandaVision TV show, come on Friday 
at noon. We're going live on YouTube. Me and my girlfriend host a WandaVision after show where we talk about everything that goes on in the Marvel Universe. So feel free to come by if you'd like to. Again, have a great rest of your week. And now, somehow, someway, somewhere, this week, may the Force be with you.